0: Down ...a threat to decency and humanity. Week, along with
1: cocaine, what is it stake is more than one small country. country. It it is a big idea. Because of a repression has been
0: will we'll gather the church. We'll faithful will gather, we'll we'll gather inside the church. Faithful, 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 faithful. faithful.
1: faithful. 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 faithful.
0: the alchemical tech revolution and i am your host wayne mccroy good evening everyone tonight we're going to discuss a little bit about language symbology and the ai soul now this paper we're going to be reading from tonight will touch upon points that attach philosophy and some more spiritual type connotations and thoughts to modern technology, computers, AI, and these kind of things, and we'll see how it is all interlaced with symbolism, with the importance of language and rhetoric, and these kind of things, these kind of principles. And that's what we're dealing with in the modern era with our approach towards artificial intelligence. Now, we have many people in this world that are really trying to completely drum up the idea that artificial intelligence will somehow, someday become sentient and deserves to have rights very much like people and we have this whole transhumanist notion where we're going to merge with the AI and we're going to talk about some of the ontological aspects of this here tonight. We're going to be reading from a scientific paper from a journal on a website called InTech. This is where this is from, and it's InTechOpen, the world's leading publisher of open access books built by scientists for scientists, and it is a peer-reviewed journal that publishes various types of studies in the open literature out there for the scientific community to look at, and tonight we're reading from a paper that was uploaded to this InTech and it's called Semiotic ontologies of Ghosts and Machines. And it's going to be an interesting look at this connection between the spiritual side of things and the manifestation of artificial intelligence in our reality and how some of these things play off of one another and how very much the philosophical portion of this has been leveraged, in a sense, to prop up this AI narrative that we have today. So let's get into it. Introduction. Semiotics has a long tradition as the science of signs, signification, and meaning-making. Four traditions have contributed to Western semiotics, and these are semantics, including the philosophy of language, logic, rhetoric, and hermeneutics going to pause for a moment here, folks. So just to lay down some definitions here, we're talking about a little something called semiotics. And this is a combination of these four different things in the Western science of semiotics. So he says here it's the philosophy of language, logic, rhetoric, and hermeneutics. So a lot of this actually draws back from some of the old school teachings from things like the trivium and the quadrivium. Where you're teaching points like logic, rhetoric, language, hermeneutics, these types of things. This is a lot of what's been lost in our modern education system. We don't speak about these things, so you'll see just the use of tools like rhetoric to embellish certain ideas or to attach certain ideas into the popular culture is what's been done here, and this is what's called semiotics, just to kind of lay down that brief definition here. So the paper continues here, and it says, However, both John Dealey and Umberto Eco have claimed the need to reread the history of philosophy, and maybe of other disciplines, from a semiotic point of view. This volume shows that there are many other fields contributing to make semiotics an interdisciplinary arena and an ever-growing field of interest. So again, I'm going to pause from the reading there. So they're attaching importance to this idea of semiotics. And like I said, semiotics simply means logic, rhetoric, hermeneutics, and language, the use of language. So this is about actually influencing people to believe certain ideas or to support certain ideas. And this is what's been done with this AI narrative, as we'll see here as we continue. Much of the scientific mainstream has supported or backed the idea that, well, artificial intelligence, although it's going to be a hugely transformational tool and it could be really useful, it's dangerous And at some point, it could actually develop sentience of its own, and it's going to turn on humanity and destroy us all. Now, there's nothing, no type of real hard evidence to support that thesis, but this is certainly what we hear all the time. This is what's been done. This is a type of rhetoric. This is the use of these semiotic tools. It's a type of philosophical toolbox that they draw from, in order to support their actions and their policies on certain things so with that being said this is the semiotics of ai and what they've done is they've convinced people well ai if left unabated is going to become extremely dangerous and turn on humanity and destroy us so what do they do they offer a type of solution to that and what is their solution Well, we need to merge with the AI. Transhumanism, that's the solution. So you see how they offer these different solutions, and this is what rhetoric is about. They've used the rhetoric to make people and convince people very thoroughly that artificial intelligence left unchecked can be extremely dangerous and that we may be beyond the Rubicon at this point with it already. It may have already gotten to the point where we can't stop it anymore. The genie's already out of the bottle. Yet You hear this kind of talk among these people that seriously look at this notion of artificial intelligence. They want you to believe it's dangerous. Our only solution is this transhumanist path. And that's a tool called rhetoric in action right there. It's not something that we're largely taught today in our education system, but... Make no mistake about it, in those private schools that the elites and the power brokers of this world attend, they teach them rhetoric, they teach them hermeneutics, they teach them logic, they teach them the roots of language, and the subtle nuances of language, and how to use language, they teach them this stuff, they teach them these semiotic principles, Semantics. You may be more familiar with the term semantics. Semiotics is very similar to semantics. It's about presenting an opinion in a certain direction and convincing people that your opinion is correct. And that's what they've done. They've used these tools to really trump up this idea of AI being probably the most powerful tool that we have right now and being the next arms race. And that, of course, they've presented the solution, like we said. And that's where we're at with this. So they're saying here that perhaps we need to go back and take a look at some other ways of thinking and take an approach like this with the artificial intelligence. Let's read on here and see exactly what they're suggesting here. And we'll see a little bit of the background of this scientific discipline of semiotics. In the Western world, the first semiotic incursions can be traced back to the Greeks before contemporary semioticians raised the question of the powerful action and affordances of signs, and it says see below for this concept, signs, remember that, signs, symbols, talk about this stuff all the time. This is some of the important facets of what we would call symbology here. Now, I know we've talked about this kind of thing to quite a bit of depth on these shows before. The importance of symbols, symbolism, and how it transcends different language barriers, and how a symbol could represent many different things, and there's an archetype behind the symbol. And this is pretty much one of the things that fleshes this out a little bit more, this study of semiotics. So even though it sounds like a lot of big college-level words... That we're throwing around here and it sounds kind of boring and dry. It's important to have a foundation and a basis in this to get to where you can understand the language of symbology a little better. That's why we're doing this. It's not because I like to pick verbiose papers to read from. Robust papers, if you will. (laughs) There's enough of those out there, and we've read some of those ad nauseum to present these ideas. But this is what these think tank groups and stuff do. They use rhetoric as a means to sway public opinion about certain things. And we're going to get a little deeper into that on a program sometime next week, probably. We're going to talk about Tavistock again and some of the things they've done the things that have been introduced by folks by, like John Rawlings Reese and the whole crew over there from Tavistock, and the plans they put forward, and all of this stuff ties into that. But let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here. So we're talking about signs. It says, Before contemporary semioticians raised the question of the powerful action of, and affordances of signs... There were phenomena considered significant in three main contexts. Poetics and linguistics, it says in parentheses. Logic and philosophy, in parentheses. And medicine, so remember, linguistics, philosophy, and medicine. Keep those in mind. Now, logic is a type of code word for philosophy in many of these papers. Let's read on here. So the introductory paper shows how knowledges from the past haunt the present and future of semiotics in various ways. The reflection functions as a catalyst to connect the diverse papers collected in this volume, contributing to the point, contributing to point out the contemporary relevance of semiotics and its interdisciplinary applications. And before we continue any further, interdisciplinary Think in terms, whenever you hear the word interdisciplinary, substitute that with cybernetics, and you've got yourself a winner-winner chicken dinner right there. Anytime any of these types of white papers and policy papers and think tank papers and things like this talk about interdisciplinary studies, they're speaking directly to the science of cybernetics. That's exactly what it is. And now we're going to get a little bit further into the connection here with high tech. The subtitle of Ghosts and Machines refers to a phrase used by Oxford professor and philosopher Gilbert Ryle to capture the Cartesian idea of a soul mind within the body slash machine, which he employed to criticize materialist theories that reduce mental activity to physical reality. The phrase was later popularized by Hungarian-British journalist Arthur Kessler, who borrowed it for his 1967 book, The Ghost in the Machine, where his central concern was the controversy over auto-replicative forms of intelligence in the human brain. The phrase has acquired new meanings in artificial intelligence. It was used by Arthur C. Clarke in his 1982 novel, 2010, Odyssey 2, by Stephen King in his 1991 serial novel, The Dark Tower, and more recently by Japanese artist Masamuni Shirou for his manga, Ghost in the Shell, and its movie adaptations. The evolution of the topic shows concern over the possibility of cyber brains and the symbiosis of the human and the machine throwing light on some key aspects of the contemporary debate on semiotics. And I'm going to pause again there. So now we're... Keying up the transhumanist ideas here was laid out here by the popularization of this phrase, the subtitle of Ghosts and Machines, used by this fellow, uh, Gilbert Ryle, initially, and then adopted by some other authors later, and adapted for books largely about technological things. The Ghost and the Machine. Did you ever wonder where that term came from, how it came to popularity? Well, this is why it has a useful context for these people who practice this semiotics, this type of rhetoric, this type of linguistic programming. You could call it linguistic programming. I'm sure you're all familiar with the term neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. That's also part of this. You see how all these things tie together, and it all ties together to cybernetics principles. And this is why we have this attachment to the notion of AI with this. That's why cybernetics has largely been conflated with robotics and artificial intelligence and things of that nature. It's all part and parcel of it, but the science of cybernetics itself is about whole systems control. It's the science of controlling whole systems. And we see how these things have been attached in this way, and you have that ghost-in-the-machine application here. And it's all about the possibility of adaptive computer networks messing with the human brain. The human mind, or becoming equivalent to the human mind. And a lot of this ties back to some of these older philosophical ideas, and we'll see how it all ties together here as we continue on here. So it says, indeed, cybernetic advance is so rapid that there is already software that tracks the electrical activity of human nervous systems, collecting patterns of thoughts and emotions in order to map entire human life experiences, turning them into searchable data, i.e. the British Telecom soul catcher computer chip. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Many of you may not be aware of this, but this is something that was developed nearly 30 years ago and I'm sure has probably been in use for some time now, we have this idea now that there is already in existence software that can track the electrical activity of the human nervous system. And it says here, collecting thoughts, patterns of thoughts and emotions to map out human life experiences. Well, how does it do this? Well, there's several different patents that exist One of them, a patent for monitors that can actually detect through your eyes through a method called optogenetics can detect certain electrical patterns. You have EEG technology, this kind of thing. Many of these machines we have now are capable of detecting these things And they've been largely working on this and trying to find commercial applications for this. This has been going on for a long time within the auspices of the military-industrial complex, even to the point where the corporation called British Telecom, they developed what they called a soul-catcher computer chip. And I spoke about this briefly in my first book, which I wrote back in 2017. Most of it 2016-2017 was when I wrote that. And this has been in existence since the 1990s, to some degree or another. And this is the claim here made in this scientific paper from a peer-reviewed source, from an academic scientific journal, where it's talking about this as if it's a matter of fact, which I think it is at this point. So let's continue, because it gets a little bit more revelatory beyond that. So just keep this in mind as we're going through. So we have this notion here that's been laid out, that we have these machines which are able to map out human experiences, thoughts, emotions, these kind of things remotely without people realizing it and recording it in some kind of a utility somewhere for replication at some later point. So we have to keep that in mind. And you could go ahead and do a quick search, if you're interested enough, in British Telecom, Soul Catcher Chip, and you'll find all sorts of different articles and stuff about that. It's kind of disappeared off the the face of the earth at this point in the modern time here. And I I think that largely is attributable to the fact that the human attention span has been significantly shortened. So we don't look back 20 years now articles 20 years ago and take these things into consideration look at what they were saying then compare it to today and see what's going on and uh, we even have confirmation of this now facebook well meta formerly known as facebook just within the past week or so they had an article out that they they pretty much they they figured out how to read people's minds now <laughs> And there you go. So it's an admitted commodity at this point. But this was developed like 30 years ago. Probably longer than that. But this is when it was first acknowledged in the public realm here with this British telecom. Soul catcher. But uh, let's, let's continue on. I don't want to get too hung up on that side tangent says the cybernetic advance is so rapid that there is already software that tracks the electrical activity of the human nervous system, collecting patterns of thoughts and emotions in order to map entire human life experiences, turning them into searchable data, and that is through the British Telecom Soulcatcher chip as one example. In the move towards Silicon Souls... Research on biomechatronics, developed at MIT Lab, will allow a new generation of prosthesis by means of a dynamic socket that maps nerve and muscle movements in the amputee's body. These prostheses are extensions of the body as much as of the mind, since they map machine algorithms upon artificial limbs. All these contemporary immersive technologies explore the imbrication of digital simulations with body schemata. Furthermore, in the race to connect the world, the interplanet initiation or initiative launched by NASA—it's abbreviated IPN, interplanet planet—it's split up as two different words, IPN initiative launched by nasa in 1998 offers a computer networking protocol designed to operate in in, at interplanetary distances not just connecting people but connecting galaxies gonna pause for a moment here folks just to point out they gotta throw their nasa nonsense in here too, don't they and what were we talking about just prior to this last section here Well, we were talking about the importance of rhetoric and semiotics, semantics, symbology, the use of linguistics, language, all of these different tools. It's the art of convincing people something's true. So regardless of whether any of this stuff is true or not, it's out here in the academic peer-reviewed scientific literature that these programs exist, that these things are true, and that they are working on this. And that they've made some different, different breakthroughs here in connecting not just the world, but galaxies. <laughs> you see here connecting people, but connecting galaxies as well. Being able to use computer networks across the space of galaxies. So we see how they're trying to gear us up towards this transhumanist notion of Well, we're going to become starseed. We're going to go out into space once we get through this whole transformation, this transhumanist transformation. Then we're going to find our place out there in the stars. That's when we will eventually be able to travel to outer space, to different planets far away, and explore space. Only after the singularity has occurred. That's what they're kind of queuing up here, aren't they? Now that's problematic in my view because once they've gotten to the point where you're connected to the machine then they could pretty much control your perceptions of reality. So if they want you to believe that you've gone to space you may have only gone there in your mind, but <laughs> you will have accepted that you we we have gone to space, you've gone to space. You can travel to different worlds meet all these alien races but it's a simulation just booted into your mind through the AI database. And this is where it becomes problematic. So they they claim that this is the true nature of things, and this is kind of what's being presented here, that we have this notion of things. It's kind of a double entendre. This whole paper is kind of a double entendre. It's telling you all of this stuff, which we really have no way to verify the truthfulness thereof. But they certainly want you to believe that these technologies and these advances are real and that artificial intelligence left unchecked is dangerous and therefore the only solution we have to the problem because the genie's already been let out of the bottle is to merge with the AI and achieve our destiny to travel among the stars and become post-human. That's what they want us to believe. That's all part of the rhetoric all part of the symbology. It's all part of this semiotics, this word that they like to use in this paper. It's a type of philosophy, philosophical viewpoint. It's the whole notion of transhumanism. That's what they're trying to sell people on here. And they do so by attaching some older spiritual ideas and connotations to the technology here. It's all connected, folks. It's all about the fulfillment of what they call in the secret schools the great work, but it's a twisted and perverted version of the great work. And it has to do with the creation of a completely and wholly artificial reality. You see, they can only be the gods of this place if they completely invert the natural order and build something completely artificial. And that's what they're attempting to do. And in order to do that, first they have to transform your way of thinking about the world around you. And that's largely what's been done through these tools, these semiotic tools, through language, rhetoric, through the use of symbology, symbolism, applying and leveraging archetypes in certain ways. Because you see, these people at the topmost levels of the power structure of this world, these dark occultists who run things, they know how the human mind works. In many different ways, they know human psychology very well. They know how to manipulate and steer people's ways of thinking. Like I said, we'll get into that a little bit more in future broadcasts here. But let's go ahead and get back to some of the notions here as to how these semiotic notions and ideas attach to our modern culture and our acceptance of artificial intelligence, and perhaps our destiny as posthumans to travel among the stars. So the author of this paper says, Let me turn for a minute to the etymology of the word ghost. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the term originates in Proto-Germanic geistos, which in Old English becomes geist or geist, and Geist in German, meaning breath in the sense of disembodied spirit of a dead person that inhabits a body and might be good or bad. It later acquired religious and psychological overtones as psyche, soul, and vital principle. According to Sir James Fraser, the ghost is a sort of creature that animates de-body, de-body, excuse me, it says D-E space body, I guess that means without body, if you want to get technical about it here. So it operates without body, escaping it temporarily during sleep and permanently in death. Death being the permanent absence of the soul, he explains in The Golden Bough. The similarities with Proto-Indo-European gaist, which means anger and agitation, or Gais, which means bewildered and frightened, or gai to propel, move, or spin, should also be noted. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now, this is also a massively important thing that we overlook in the modern era. The use of language and the etymology of words. Where do they come from? What do they sound like? Where did they originate from? What was the original meaning of the word? There's nuance and there's just levels of meaning within that alone. And this is something that's referred to at times as the phonetic Kabbalah. Or the green language, the language of the birds. You can attach various symbolic meanings to words based upon their etymologies and their origins. And sometimes you can substitute other meanings altogether because of the whole concept of what we like to call sounds like, is like, with this. So that's what's being pointed out right here, right now, with this word, geist, ghost. Ghost sounds like geist, geist. Meaning, according to these various translations here, psyche, soul, vital principle, that's what the accepted attachment has become in the modern era. But you see also anger, agitation, bewilderment, frightened, propel, move, spin, movement. So we're talking about frightening, bewildering, angering, agitating movement as well as breath or disembodied spirit. So we have all these connotations attached. And it's something that's largely overlooked today. So when we're talking about the ghost in the machine, all those things apply. It's bewildering, frightening, angering, agitating. And it's propelling, spinning, and moving forward. And it also has this notion attached to it of a psyche or a soul or a vital principle. But it's an artificial one, you see, when you're talking about the ghost in the machine. And we'll get a little bit further here with some of the language connections. And this is a, a level of nuance in meaning that gets overlooked, like I said, in the modern era. Because we're not taught to, th- to think in these types of ways. We're not taught to think in connecting the dots with this stuff. But it is a type of secret language that's used by these dark occultists who know what they're doing. You don't think it's an accident that ghost in the machine has become such a popular type of a phrase or that they've attached this idea, this notion of perhaps artificial intelligence can become sentient. There's a sentience attached there. It's not an accident. And it's the manipulation and the leveraging of these linguistic and language principles. It's the use of the phonetic Kabbalah to support a thesis that they've handed us. And I hope I'm not losing folks on this, because this is where where the stuff gets deep. This is how they get things done. This is how they do stuff. And like I said, this whole paper seems to me it's a type of double entendre. It's a hidden message within the paper itself. And I found that if you dig deep enough, sometimes you find papers like this, white papers, policy papers, academic papers of sorts that are speaking at several levels. There's several different layers of meaning. Now this is actually a type of communication standard or a type of philosophy or science however you want to view it called hermeneutics which we spoke on here earlier hermeneutics this is where you can pick out layers of meaning in a particular text depending upon your interpretation and what cipher you're using to translate it that's what's going on even in this paper you see how clever this is cleverly this has been put together so we have this notion they're talking about on the surface level here. They're talking about semiotics, this science that they think is important for looking at the modern era and harkening back to these older ideas. Well, that's something that's been leveraged all the time by a lot of these people. And they're attaching this notion of the ghost in the machine to it. And of course, we're going to look at the more high-tech standards here of things. And you'll notice they... Harken back to the Greek, Greek mythology, Greek philosophy, tying the present and the future here with the past. You see how it's all neatly bound together? I hope I'm not losing you out there, folks. I know sometimes it gets a little deep, and sometimes it seems a little dry and repetitive, but it's necessary. Let's continue on. So he says, alongside ghost, the Greek term phantasma originally meant to make visible or to bring to light. And it is related to contemporary terms such as appearance, image, phantom, or fantasy, all of which entered Western languages through Latin. As in the case of ghost, It came to mean soul and spirit, maintaining a religious significance as in the Bible, i.e. the Holy Ghost. In Latin, spiritus sanctus. Continuing our incursion on etymological roots, the origin of the term semiotics shows interesting parallels that make obvious the human desire to transcend death through memory and representation, that is, the use of signs that try to make present that which is absent. In Jacques Derrida's terms, logocentrism would be a characteristic pattern of the Western world. He also used the term hauntology in his 1993 book Specters of Marx, following a reference to specter made by Marx himself in the Communist Manifesto. Derrida also echoes Shakespeare's Hamlet in order to explain that representation is a form of making present an absent past by means of different sets of signs. Representation, and he breaks it down, presentation. re-presentation, dash so representation. See how he's breaking the language apart? And like I said, don't lose the meaning here. There's double entendre layered in here. This is a hermeneutic work in and of itself. There's layers of meaning to be found here. If you know what to look for and how to read between the lines. And of course he's making allusions back to Hamlet here. Shakespeare. Shakespeare, a favorite talking point for many within the secret society groups. And the mystery schools. And of course we have Marx being mentioned. As well. So I'm just picking out some of the meta meaning in the text here for you. So this guy, Derrida, used terms logocentrism and hauntology to describe some of this desire for people to transcend death through the use of memory and representation. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds like transferring your consciousness into a machine, right? Or an algorithm that duplicates your consciousness in some way. Representation of you. Is it really you, though? That's the big question, but this is what's being leveraged here. On the surface level, and beneath the surface, we can see what's being done here by the showing of his hand here who this guy is that wrote this. Apparently he understands hermeneutics. He knows how to use hermeneutic principles to layer different meanings in there for people who know how to read it. Let's read on here. So he says he argues that the attempt to isolate social history or individual identity is always futile because it is always already. And he uses this term to capture the idea of the past living in the present. Dependent of semiotic systems where meaning is deferred, subject to interpreting actions. According to Derrida, the sign or signifier can never capture the object or the signified in its totality because we are not talking of essences but of complex processes that encompass many dimensions as well as various forms of temporality. I'm gonna pause for a moment there, folks. And I'll try and break down some of that word salad for you. So what he's saying here is the representation that is given in the present time is not an accurate representation of how things really were in the past. That can never be recaptured. You see, but what it represents is a complex process. That speaks of various forms of temporality. You see, we're all finite beings. And we all have our limitations. And he says here it's futile to try to isolate history or explain history because it doesn't ac- accurately capture what has happened. individuals in that time frame. What do we know about history? Well, we're taught a lot of things about our history, aren't we? How much of it's really true, though? How much did it affect your everyday people just living their lives at that point? The world probably looked very different than how we picture that it looked. That's the whole notion being communicated here. And he says it's futile to try to capture that because the individual identity always differs from what the historical context we're given is of that time frame. So we don't really know how people truly lived in the past or what they did, even down to individual historical figures. We don't know what their true nature really was. We just know what's been recorded about them, the representation that we've been given, which is not the actual person does not represent the actual person, you see. And this will become more problematic now in the transhumanist future when they try their very best to duplicate human consciousness inside a machine. It's not going to happen, folks. If it does, it's not the real deal. It's not the ontological self, the real I or I am within a person. It's not a real soul in the machine. It's an artificial soul. A ghost in the machine. A ghost with all those different connotations that we spoke of earlier attached to it. Frightening, confusing, anger, agitation. All of those adjectives in the previous paragraph. It's not the real thing. It's not truly you. You see, when the transhumanists promise you they can transfer your consciousness into a machine and you can live forever and be able to transcend into different forms, live in a digital world, live in different bodies forever, they're lying to you. They may not realize they're lying to you. That's not going to be you. That's a clever imitation of you by a machine. And it's never going to be completely sentient. It can mimic sentience. And therefore it is an artificial soul. And not a real soul empowering that. And that's what we have to keep in mind. It is not something that occurs naturally in this world. And because it's not something that occurs naturally, that makes it something that is man-made or man-generated and makes it artificial. So this in and of itself becomes problematic because it's in direct opposition to the natural law and the natural order of things an artificial soul only natural souls are intended to incarnate in this world so an artificial soul made by some other being than our creator does not fit into the picture very well does it? It's unnatural, does not belong here, and therefore is a type of an abomination to the natural world. Now, will this artificial soul, this artificial intelligence, will it be a full-fledged soul as we recognize the idea of a soul? It's totally different. Totally different. And this is something that gets a little hard to explain or express in words adequately with language. And that's why symbology is the important thing. So the ghost in the machine does not represent an actual spirit as we would know it, a natural spirit. It's something completely different than what we would think of as a spirit. That's what we're talking about here. You see the use of the hermeneutics Here to convey different ideas on different levels. Anyway, let's go ahead and we'll continue reading and maybe we'll get a little better context out of this from the author of this paper than what I can try to express through my use of words and language here. So it says, indeed, the haunting figure of the ghost sign, simultaneously absent and present, dead and alive, was always already there in the etymology of the term semiotics. The Greek noun, sema, appears in ancient texts. It appears in places like Homer and Hesiod, with the sense tomb or burial ground. So sema means tomb or burial ground. So ideas associated with death. Let's continue as well as with the meaning of natural or conventional signal. After the 6th century BCE, the term semion, which originates from Sema, was commonly used by Ascleius, Aesop, Hecadius of Miletus, Anaxagoras, or Cleostratus, and it comes to mean symbol and sign of a god. As well as indication and proof. It coexists with tekmor, found in the Iliad with the meaning of proof, and eventually sign and indication. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks, so we have more word etymology here that has some importance. So, this word sema, which semiotics is derived from, is initially bound to ideas of death based ideas. Tomb, burial ground, an empty thing in and of itself, a dead thing. And it's also come to be symbol. So semiotics means both tomb, burial ground, as well as symbol or sign of God, of a God, excuse me, sign of a God, and also indication and proof. So it's got different attachments to the term, meanings attached to it to it. So semiotics in my view it represents a lot of the death based ideas that empower our world today because we do live in a world where it's all a lot of death based ideas. A death cult runs this world folks if you were unaware of it. That's why we have things like corporations, the root word being corpse, a dead entity and of course If you've listened to this broadcast for any length of time, you might know a little more about that and could connect the dots yourself. If not, maybe go back and do a little bit more research into the etymology of many common words that are used for transactions today. And look at things like the idea of the straw man identity and all of these things that are attached to these death-based ideas and systems that we have. So semiotics is a way to reinforce those ideas, in my estimation. It is a way to use symbols as indications and proofs of the death-based ideology. So let's read on. According to Détion and Vernant, these terms were also used in fortune telling, astronomy, and navigation, referring to signals coming from the gods and alluding to cunning knowledge associated with the goddess Metis. Metis, M E T I S. Gonna pause for a moment here. Sounds a lot like Meta, you know, that mother company that Facebook <laughs> has now become. Changed their name to Meta, Meta, Metis. We've heard terms like Metropolis in the past, and we hear Metaverse still in the vernacular. It's kind of trailed off a little bit in recent times. But Metaverse ideology was the big thing if you go back like two years. They were talking heavily about the Metaverse, the Metaverse. Well, I think the term has really fallen flat on its face since the whole Facebook debacle, but they're still building it, folks. They just call it something different now. It's there. It's the new infrastructure. It's the new Web 3.0 infrastructure that they're trying to build, and a lot of it's based on blockchain technology, various things like that, public ledger where information isn't lost in the transaction So we have all of this stuff coming to bear here, but keep that in mind. The goddess Metis, cunning knowledge, signals coming from the gods. That's what they're talking about here. So you see how they're attaching some of these past ideas to the present and the future. So the term tekmor evolved towards techne in the context of medicine during the 5th century BCE. And the beginning of the fourth, when Hippocrates' disciples complied, or compiled the chief treasury treatises of the Corpus Hippocraticum. According to the, these treatises, the doctors were able to identify a specific type of signs, or semia is the word here in parentheses, through which they were able to conclude the health or illness of individuals. The medical method of establishing conjectures, techmeristai, for diagnosis, departed from the analogical-deductive procedure used in philosophy and which rested on the notion of physis as a cosmos, a whole finished reality arranged by laws that were replicated at the human microcosmic level. Hippocratic medicine described inferential semiotics when it explained how semia moves beyond mere conjecture to become semion and gain the sense of proof, which is called tekmerion. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we're seeing more etymological root words here. Tekmor, T-E-K-M-O-R, was later turned to techni, techne, T-E-C-H-N-E, And this relates to medicine and physiology, medical things, physis, P-H-Y-S-I-S, that was also mentioned here as a cosmos. And you know how they say in the secret schools that we are the microcosm of the macrocosm. Well, that's where physiology comes from. And physics, we're the microcosm of the macrocosm. And it has its attachment here to medicine. So The Establishment of Medical Conjectures, Techmeristhi. I won't bother to spell that one for you. (laughs) That, That one's a little bit lengthy. But these are all ancient Greek terms. So a lot of these root words that we have here mean these things. So when you hear technology, know that there's an inherent attachment to medicine there. Are you beginning to understand a little better how this works? How this hermeneutic principle of hiding layers of meaning into basic words we use today for a means of secret communication can be done. So medicine, modern medicine, technology, is about medical conjectures, medical methods. Technology. Semion. Semiotics. And, of course, techmerion, says here, means proof. So technology is the proof that they're looking for here. Our modern science, the proof of concept. You see, this is where a lot of these words come from. And I know a lot of this stuff gets a little deep for people at times. And you could get lost if you're not following the line of thinking here. That's the hard part. That's really the hard part, is to separate yourself from all the different ways of, t- of thinking you've been taught to do in the past. From all your past education and learning how to think in this connecting the dots type of a way, switching from one area of focus to another based upon, well, the etymological meanings of words, first of all, when you're talking about the linguistic aspect of it. But this also applies to symbols and stuff as well, symbols, signs. There's various layers of meaning attached to them, and they could mean various things based upon what kind of a cipher you're using to decode it. And that's the problem. We don't always have the the proper cipher to decode the hidden language here. But they make use of it all the time. And I'm trying to do my best to reverse engineer it. Figure a lot of this stuff out. But this is an important tool that they use. This science they call semiotics. The art of rhetoric. The use of symbology. Linguistics, language, etymological roots of words. Phonetic Kabbalah. That's why it's called that. It's getting to the roots of words, listening to the sounds, and connecting the dots between the sounds. That's how we could get from something here like techmeraiste, which means medical methods of conjecture, to technology and see, sounds like, is like, and be able to make that meta connection in our minds now. About Sometimes when they're talking about technology, it always has this inferred reference back to medicine or being attached to medicine, which directly relates to the human body or physiology. You see why they've attached many of these notions in this way? It's all about affecting people's thinking. Affecting people's thinking, and it does this on a subconscious or unconscious level. Because we don't actively understand the etymology or the roots of where these words come from. But there is this archetype or this archetypal representation attached to that. There's something inherently in our minds that will recognize that some of these words, well, they derive from elsewhere. And there's some other meaning attached to them. Like you understand full well. If you speak English, you know the English language is an amalgamation of many other languages. And you know when you hear some of these terms, a lot of times the roots are derived from elsewhere, from older languages. And they mean things that the modern word doesn't necessarily reflect. And we're not taught to really think in these terms. But your brain, your mind will inherently recognize this archetypal thing, that this language comes from elsewhere, that there's something else attached there, and sometimes it'll get the notion of what it is based upon, well, let's put it this way, the, the sound, the frequency, the vibration. I know it sounds kind of new agey, but there's something inherent there. It's about the spoken word. The written word is a whole separate deal. And I'm still trying to reverse engineer a lot of that too. The spoken word is where it's at. It's where the importance lies with a lot of this stuff, with etymological roots of words. So you understand, you may hear a word and you'll immediately recognize that sounds like German. You may not know what the word means, but see somewhere in your unconscious mind, The archetype is present there, and it recognizes that frequency, that pattern of sounds, and it attaches a connotation to it on an unconscious level. But you don't pick up on it on a conscious level, you see. So you may hear Geist and understand, okay, that's German. You might hear the word Zeitgeist and have not known what the meaning of that is. You understand it's German. The modern meaning of that is spirit of the time spirit of the time, but there's other archetypal connotations attached to it that we don't recognize on the conscious level. And just go back and look at the etymology we just did on the word ghost a little while back, and you'll be able to pick out some various different meanings in that just based upon that one. But at any rate, I I hope you get the point here, and I don't want to side trail too long and ramble about that too much because there's a bit more I would like to cover here tonight before we sign off but we have this hermeneutic attachment here to looking at these root words and he's making a clear a very clear type of an effort to do that here so there's importance to it in regards to this paper we're reading so let's continue on So it says, Aristotle's contribution to semiotics had already clarified that signs are demonstrative propositions that might or might not acquire meaning to someone. Beyond causality relations, statements can constitute the premises of syllogism, and as such, they can become conventional cultural signs whose paradigm is the word. However, they may also lack a specific name, and it says in parentheses, a nomenmon, it's a Greek word, and therefore be refutable, and that is the art of rhetoric. For instance, the fact that Socrates was wise and just is an anonymous sign that wise men are just. I'm gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So it makes assumptions. Okay, let's put it that way. That's what he's saying here in plain terms. So Aristotle's attempts to divine various terms related to the field of logic and semiotics. A clearer allusion appears in Parahermenias, or De Interpretation, where he puts forth the explicit opposition between words and things, the logos and the own, it says here, already prefigured in Plato. One of the fragments present presents an early description of triadic semiotics. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's quoting from some old philosophical things from places like Plato and from Aristotle. These kind of things when he's making these connections here. And of course he's using very jargony type terms. And what sounds like a lot of word salad to those of us that aren't like master's degree philosophy students or something like that. like uh, You wouldn't be really talking about these various things in this way unless you were. And, of course, they like to throw their jargon in there and their big words to throw people off the meaning of what they're saying, the simple meaning of the things they're saying. But we have here, if we could make a little more sense out of that word salad, what he's saying is sometimes you can make an attachment to a thing that may not necessarily reflect that thing. Whereas it's saying here, Socrates was wise and just. Well, then you would make the connection that all wise people are just. That's not the case all the time. Or that the intelligent people all know what's best for you. Right? So you can see what's been been suggested here. So this is how semiotics works. It's a way of comparing different things in certain regards here, equating certain ideas one with the other, when they may not necessarily apply as such. But let's continue on here. So he says, Now spoken sounds are symbols of affections in the soul, and written marks symbols of spoken sounds going to pause for a moment. So once again, now this guy's making the distinction between the spoken word and the written word, like I just did a little earlier. There's some slight differentiations between the two and how different types of semiotic or hermeneutic communications can be transmitted through those things. And sometimes, sometimes you have to kind of switch back and forth. Like if you're reading from the page like this, You have to actually speak it out loud, and then you could pick up some of the hidden meaning within it. Whereas if you're just reading the word, it might not be inherent. It might not occur to you in that case. And sometimes it's the opposite. The spoken word, if you write it on paper and look at it, then you can see. There's a visual element there that stands out that gives you some hidden nuance. And these things are interchangeable at times, and it all depends upon what your cipher of translation is for this stuff. And like I said, I hope I'm not getting too in-depth here with this and losing folks on this. This is important. It's an important way of thinking in order to translate some of their hidden messaging in these things. So it's important that i try to communicate this as best i can and sometimes i lack the adequate language or way to do so so i hope i'm not speaking over your heads on certain things and i hope you understand what i'm trying to communicate with this there's hidden metacontext in all the things that they share like this in many regards and this like i said this paper in and of itself is pointing that out in many ways And, of course, it's using this connection to modern technology. And we'll see the connection there as we go on. But let's go ahead and I'll continue reading because I think I just did too much of a side tangent on that because I don't want to lose anybody. It says, but what these are in the first place, the signs or the written symbols here, what these are in the first place, signs, are their affections of the soul are all the same for all. They're the same for all. So these represent the affections of the soul. So these symbols, these signs, these written signs, or these visible signs that they give, the symbols, they're affections of the soul. That's how he defines it here. Now that's kind of vague terminology, and maybe we'll be able to bring a little more context to that as we read on. He says, "...and what these affections are likenesses of, actual things are also the same." After the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BCE, and the emergence of the Roman Empire, Greek civilization entered the Hellenistic Age, a period marked by battles and territorial shifts which lasted until the Roman conquest of Ptolemaic Egypt in the first century BCE. Many sources were lost during this period, either because of war or because of lack of interest in scribal preservation. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this paragraph may seem a little out of place when you're looking at the overall paper here. But like I said, this is cleverly put together. And this is more hermeneutics in action right here. So we see he's talking about after the death of Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire emerged and the Greek civilization went into its Hellenistic period. And there were power shifts and territory shifts until the time that the Romans conquered Ptolemaic Egypt. Now, why would he mention Ptolemaic Egypt? Once again, we have a connection here. This connection, it's not obvious at face value, unless you know what you're looking at here. This is the transmission of the underground current of esoteric thought that's being revealed here. They were talking about how it transferred from the Greek to the Roman, but it was only done in full when the Romans conquered Ptolemaic Egypt, because Egypt was the source from which the Greeks got all of their information, their philosophy. And it's from Greek philosophy that Roman philosophy emerged. And then we have today the modern period, All Roads Lead to Rome. So it's showing you the transmission of the underground stream of esoteric knowledge, where it came from, where it's going and how it attaches to what we're talking about here, to these hermeneutic ideas, to these semiotic ideas. You see, that's, that's the whole purpose. That's the whole surface narrative of this paper. He's looking at the history of semiotics and how it was brought into the modern era and how it can still be used today and how it's an important facet of what he calls interdisciplinary studies and how we need to be understanding of some of these old philosophies and how they can be of value in our modern systems and through the use of our modern science and our modern technologies. That's the surface narrative of this paper. How these old ideas relate to the new ideas, how the past relates to the present and the future. He's neatly tying this together with a a bow for us. And it's cleverly put together because he's offering this multi-layered meaning to this. We have, of course, the surface reading here, which most people would read this and think this is dry and boring and dull. And it's saying a whole lot of nothing with a lot of verbiose language, a lot of big college-level words. And they would dismiss something like this. But I'm telling you, this is a meta communication. He's expressing a type of esoteric knowledge in the background here in this paper. And this is confirmation of that, the point that he had to point out this connection between the Greeks and the Romans and of course the Egyptian portion thereof. And then he says, many sources were lost during this period, either because of war or because of lack of interest in scribal preservation. And what is he doing? He's scribally preserving information here. But you have to know how to read between the lines or find the hermeneutic meaning within. Let's read on because there's a bit more to cover before we sign off here. In the 2nd century CE, Claudius Galenus synthesized Hippocratic medicine, synthesized, excuse me, Hippocratic medicine and the philosophical thoughts of Plato and Aristotle to include the advancement of technology into the inferential process of medical diagnosis, coining the term semiosis. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we're beginning to connect some dots. Now we have technology applied to medicine and philosophy. And remember, code word logic for philosophy in here. When you're talking about some of the old quadrivium and trivium teachings, logic, science, logic and rhetoric being among those in that way of thinking. And we're not taught this in the modern age, but that's neither here nor there. So he coined the term semiosis, which relates, of course, to semiotics. In the 1750s, a series of excavations that took place at Herculaneum, an ancient Roman town located at the skirts of Mount Vesuvius and covered with debris after the 79 Common Era eruption unveiled a great collection, papyrus. Among these were a treatise by Epicurean philosopher Philodemus of Gadara, probably entitled *Peri Simeon que Semiosion*, on signs and sign inferences, known now by its abbreviated title, Disignis. The Treatise contains a variation of the terms semiosis, from which C.S. Pierce would derive semiosis, spelled slightly different. See? Spelled slightly differently, excuse me, having trouble speaking here with all these Greek words that I can't pronounce. So it says semiosis, as in Aristotle for Philodemus, common signs cannot be taken as valid inferential premises as can particular or necessary signs. The treatise preserves the controversy on the validity of sign inference which took place between Epicureans and Stoics in order to establish the type of proof to determine the difference between signs. While the Stoics defended deductive inferences established from a priori principles, the Epicureans trusted empirical-inducive testing. So I'm going to pause for a moment here And break down a little bit more of that word salad for you. So we have Epicureans and Stoics. They understood certain signs and symbols between each other. But they disagreed on how to establish meanings in those. The Epicureans... They trusted empirical inductive testing, so they wanted to be able to have an absolute objective standard of saying this absolutely means this, whereas the Stoics the Stoics defended deductive inferences, which means they used their own reasoning based upon whatever cipher they had for that at the time to infer meanings in a symbol. So the Epicureans, they wanted it a standardized version. This symbol means this. The Stoics, they understood a little bit about this whole art of understanding the implied meanings in things, the language of symbology in and of itself. They didn't attribute absolute values to certain signs or symbols. They use their own deductive reasoning in the context of which it was presented. And this is a hugely important thing. So they had this kind of disagreement in how to interpret these things. And why is this being pointed out in this paper? You see, it's another question, isn't it? It's because this is one of the lines of reasoning you have to use in hermeneutics. You have to use one standard to read a certain meaning in a thing, and then use the other standard to understand another meaning within this thing. So there will be an exoteric version that tells you a thing, and there will be an esoteric version. So that's what this is pointing out. Like I said, this is a very cleverly crafted paper. He's telling you there's two meanings here in this very paper itself. If you're just reading the surface meaning, you're probably going to be lost and bored. But if you could read the esoteric or underlying theme here, you can understand a little something about what's called metacommunication, what we can call metacommunication. It's a way of conveying ideas without using the actual surface-level words. It's an inference. It's inferred if you know what to look for. It's like an inside joke. And you see, the people in the positions of power in this world, these dark occultists who run things, they do this all the time, and I think we've pointed this out on past broadcasts. They like to do this. If you're not in on the in-joke, you won't understand it. It'll go right over your head, and you won't think anything more of it. But if you know the in-joke, well, you pick up on it, and you know, and you chuckle at all the stupid monkeys that didn't pick up on it. That's how they operate. This is exactly what the phonetic Kabbalah is, what the green language is, what the language of the birds is. They call it many different things in the secret schools. And it's a type of metacommunication. Using plain language. This is pretty plain language, although it's all chock full of various jargon and stuff like that and big uppity college-level words. It's the surface exoteric meaning. It's not as important as the hidden meaning underneath the esoteric or the hermeneutic meaning. Hermeneutics, there's many layers of meaning that can be inferred if you know what to look for. And he's using certain terms here to point out certain things, which clues me in as to what he's talking about with that. And that's how I'm able to communicate that to you. But the thing is, most people wouldn't even bother to read this. They would look at the title of the paper and they'd be like, eh, semiotics, I don't even know what that is. This sounds very boring and collegey and ugh. I don't I don't want anything to do with that. Doesn't sound like there's anything much to it. But there's layers of meaning here. Let's continue on because I want to try and wrap this up here very soon. Greek reflections on nature, on the nature and purpose of science systems and their relations to different types of knowledge, has continued to haunt Western thought for centuries. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. You'll notice he used the terms hauntologies and haunt a lot throughout the course of this paper, and he's making an inference here, and he made sure to put haunt in quotation marks here in this portion of the paper. So we have these types of sign systems and relations to different types of knowledge that haunt Western thought for centuries. Of course he's referring to some of these old occult sciences that seem to haunt our modern day science. Our language, these linguistic nuances that haunt our new our modern language here. He's referring absolutely to what I was just talking about. It's this type of metacommunication. So he says, thus, scholasticism and medieval semiotics developed within theology and the trivium of the three liberal arts concerned primarily with textual exegesis and hermeneutics, grammar, dialectic logic, and rhetoric. During this period, realist and nominalist positions debated over the existence or not of universals. A proponent of nominalism, William of Ockham, considered universals to be signs without an existence of their own, but standing for individual objects. Conceptualism, held by Peter Abelard, Albert the Great, and Thomas Aquinas, was accepted as a synthesis of the two positions, with universals universals are also mind-dependent, but formed by similarities with real things of a common form. So I'm going to pause again here. So we have various different philosophies that have been adopted through the course of time based upon some of these older ideas that haunt our modern day. And you see how he points out these debates between these different philosophers of various times. And we have this connection here, this idea of conceptualism and this idea of nominalism And all of these different, very mundane and boring sounding types of philosophical notions that he talks about here. But it's important to understand that we have these different ways of thinking. And if you can apply the meaning of this way of thinking to the plain text on the page, as opposed to that way of thinking to the plain text on the page, you'll come up with two different meanings altogether of the text, and this is what's referred to as hermeneutics. If you read it with this frame of mind, you can understand one of the contexts in which the thing is written. And if you do it with the other frame of mind, if you look at it as a concept rather than something nominal or plain, you can understand something a little different than what the plain words on the page say. That's what's being pointed out here. So essentially, that's kind of what's being talked about here. He's talking about how in Western culture, in times past here, we've had this trivium, the three liberal arts, which are logic, rhetoric, and grammar. Now, in the modern era, we're not taught these things anymore, at least not in the way we were back, going back to like the 1800s and even the early 1900s. This stuff has been largely, largely now removed from our schooling systems. There's a reason for that. It's about the deliberate dumbing down of the people. Because they don't want us to think in these terms anymore. Only those that go to the elite schools, the ruling class, get taught these things now. The bulk of the masses do not. So you're not taught logic, rhetoric, and grammar anymore. And we see that reflected in our culture, don't we? And this was largely accepted as what's called here a synthesis of the two positions. So you have two different ways of looking at a thing. And there's bare minimum two different ways of looking at a thing. In the application of hermeneutics in particular, There's many different levels of meaning that can be applied if you use the right interpretation tool or the right cipher to translate them. Now, this applies a lot to biblical studies and theology as well. It's said that biblical hermeneutics, there's at least seven different interpretive layers of meaning to the scriptures that you can deduce through using the hermeneutic principles by breaking it down into these different contexts and looking at them. Now that's just one example, and that's just from the Bible. Now that's, that's a bare minimum of seven. There's probably more we don't know about that are contained within some of the secret societies, the teachings of the secret societies at high levels. They might have some other ways of breaking down biblical scripture and finding different meanings inferred therein by applying these principles. But I'm just trying to give that as an example. So that's what he's pointing out here. There's likely more than one meaning to any given text that you see, at least if it's written by somebody who has that standard of knowledge, to put it in there. And of course we see he's making the allusion here between technology and medicine in the modern era. And of course this Directly relates to the merging of man and machine, inferred in the very words themselves from the beginning. You see how deep this really runs, folks? Let's continue reading, and we're going to wrap it up here. A new era of interest in research on the nature of signs began in the ages of rationalism and British empiricism. The period showed a shift from analogic reasoning towards the expression of knowledge as both analytic and referential practice, where representation stems in the observer's perceiving or thinking mind, or the subject of enunciation, and gradually shifts to a more abstract mode, where the word or sign and the phenomenon or matter are brought to coincide in the act of mimetic representation. This move was also associated with an epistemological shift from the perceiving subject to the observed empirical object. The use of optic technologies and lenses employed in instruments such as the telescope, developed by Johann Kepler and Galileo Galilei, enabled this viewing transition just as the screens of computers, tablets, and smartphones opened contemporary worlds to the virtual cybersphere. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So now we're gonna connect some dots to the modern era here. Mimetic representation, do you know what memes are really about? It's the conveyance of ideas through these instrumentations, through the technological ways of doing so. And it's all about affecting the observer's perception or thinking mind. And it's shifting them more towards an abstract notion. And being able to picture this and embellish it as a physical, real notion here. And of course, he's making the connection here between what it was like with the telescopes, how they were able to get a better, clearer view of the stars in the sky with the use of the telescope. And now we see this transition happening again today with the use of computers and screens where we can open contemporary new worlds to the virtual world cybersphere as he likes to call it in spite of Galileo's innovative engineering his methods were based largely on the theories of analogy proportion and inverse proportion passed on by Italian mathematician Leonardo Fibonacci of Pisa you may be familiar with the word Fibonacci he was famous for a certain sequence right as well as the Egyptian Greek architect known as Euclid A new translation of his book of Elements was published in 1543, only some 20 years before Galileo's birth. It had the advantage of coming from a Latin version based on an earlier Greek source rather than via Arabic translations. I bring to the fore these issues of translation and the differences in symbolic representation because the late 1500s and early 1600s mark the expansion of Gutenberg printing press as well as the rupture of the ancient unity between calculation, natural philosophy, and alphabetic writing. I'm gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So we have a little bit of history here of how these semiotic ideas have been brought forward. And I've been using the term semiotic interchangeably with hermeneutic and rhetorical or rhetoric here quite a bit because they all kind of mean the same thing. It's all about trying to influence a person's thinking into perceiving things in a certain way. And that's what's been done. It's a... a, almost like a weaponization of language, in a sense, really. So we have this here, and we have how he's showing this science has come forward through the years, and how a lot of it has to do with loss in translation after the invention of the Gutenberg press, the printing press. Let's read on. So the ensuing separation continued to pose the problem in philosophical debates between demonstrative and dialectical reasoning as scholars tried to explain how singular items of experience were part of universal knowledge, a problem explored by Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Mathematician and author of Alice's Adventurers in Wonderland, Charles Ludwig Doggson, better known as Lewis Carroll, confronted the problem in his Tangled Tales. In Principles of Mathematics, Bertrand Russell continued to face a similar challenge. Whether the class of all classes is or is not a member of itself... The analytical referential form of reasoning developed after René Descartes tried to explain the connection between the physical body, much like a machine, separated from the spirit or soul, that animated the mind. In the description of the human body, he argued that the mind regulates the body through the pineal gland, which he considered the seat of the soul. His idea of innate human knowledge led John Locke to combat Cartesian deduction with inductive empiricism. Limitations arose in both cases as knowledge was treated as an object, thus creating a boundary between the liminal being of which one is conscious and the ineffable being or the sublime for which sublime for which there is no articulation. Gonna pause for a moment here folks. So we have What's happened here, he's giving a little bit of a brief history of how philosophers through the course of time have argued over the nature of consciousness of what is the soul and what makes the soul or the spirit different from the body and is there this separation and of course many considered the pineal gland to be the seat of the soul and even still today within the various occult fraternities, the pineal gland, or the third eye, if you want to go there. But let's go ahead and continue here. The semiotics of George Berkeley maintained that words do not always stand for ideas, and that they have other functions, such as referring to passions. Johann Gottfried Herder sustained that human cognitive capacity only has access to the exterior marks of things, or signs, and that these do not express the things themselves, only their names. Immanuel Kant, critique of pure reason, postulated basic conceptual categories of human thought as a priori tools for making sense of the world. To Kant, these categories exist independently of human experience. The image was a category of perception, while a priori concepts formed part of pure reason. This topic was also explored by Gotthold Ephraim Lessing in his work, Leocoon, a prominent example of the study of iconicity in the arts. A precursor of the studies of iconicity was Giambattista Vico, whose philosophy was also influential upon Friedrich Wilhelm Schelling or novelist, and George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and more specifically, Bernard Bolzano, continued to develop a pragmatic dimension of semiosis by exploring different types of signs from the point of view of perception, visual and auditory signs, gestural and verbal signs. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So all that word salad and all of that... Alleged knowledge this guy's dropping. He's trying to impress people now with his depth of knowledge of all of these famous philosophers who contributed different portions to the notion of what is consciousness. Basically, that's what this is talking about. What exactly is consciousness? Is it something separate from the physical body itself? Is it part of the physical body? Is there something metaphysical going on? And I think we're just going to wrap things up here because this paper goes on and on and on naming off these different philosophers and things that they've contributed to the philosophy of what exactly is the soul here and how it relates to the human condition and how the human condition attaches here with the modern era, with things here. And we're going to go ahead and get to the point here, right at the end. Introduced by Jakob von Exkul, the idea of Umwelt is pivotal in biosemiotics. For some scholars, it is the world of signs which an animal creates or inhabits, according to its sensorium. So we have this notion that signs are symbols, are created by the animal or the human himself as part of an expression of their senses. So they understand the meaning of something through their senses. Not really anything too profound here, right? But it gets about the psychological aspects of things here. So he says, according to this guy, we can understand... ...as a model that allows an organism to survive, to avoid predation, to seek out comfort and nourishment, to reproduce, etc. The perception-action shift has placed semiotics at the center of phenomenal apprehension and meaning-making as a subjective mapping function of intentionality and action-oriented survival. The object is also invested with perceptual effector potentialities that capture interpretive action and reflect human desires. More word salad for you folks. Big jargony words. Basically what he's saying here is the notion here of how we interpret symbols is based upon this survival instinct. So we recognize a lion is dangerous and will eat you. So if we can use that symbol and we see something, perhaps the lion has left his mark on a tree and we recognize, hey, that mark on the tree is related to the lion. The lion's dangerous. That's danger. Stay away. It's all based upon this survival instinct principle is what's being said here as one possible interpretation. And it can also reflect human desires, And it's about interpretive action. So, of course, he's talking about this interpretation of the symbol in this way. And it's talking about different mental models that they've used to understand this. And this is where they begin to connect the dots with modern technologies. There's been much discussion and use of the theory of affordances and mental models in human-computer interaction and usability, as shown in several papers in this volume, which addresses the debate between the compatibility of mental models and formal rules of inferential logic. In recent years, software tools capable of capturing and analyzing the structural and functional properties of mental models are being designed The study of semiotics and the concept of affordance is relevant to these fields with regards to the semantic and pragmatic possibilities of task-oriented sense-making approaches conceived in terms of their constructed internal model, as applied to very different fields such as psychology, linguistics, philosophy of language, or computer programming. The application of the concept of affordance in the context of human-machine interaction in Donald Norman's The Design of Everyday Things opens semiotics to areas involved in user-centered design, manipulation interfaces, cognitive engineering, modeling systems, organizational semiotics, and so on, some of which are addressed in this volume. The complex relation of distinctive semiotic affordances or potentials and constraints for making meaning, intention, and intermedial variability alongside questions of social usability in particular contexts have caused the category of design to move into the foreground of attention in semiotics. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. A lot of word salad here tonight in this paper. This is a very brainy paper, okay? Let's put it that way. I spared you some of the authors showing off here with his big words and his references back to some obscure philosophers and various things like this. Basically, what he's trying to get to here is in order to better understand consciousness, the nature of consciousness, they've applied computer modeling, and they can see various... Ways of mapping out human behavior, the human mind, the human brain, not just physiologically, but they can map out behavior patterns, minds, through the use of computers, and use these as models to figure out various outcomes. Simulation of sorts. So let's wrap it up here. Since the 1990s, the widespread use of computer systems has contributed to the development of systemic approaches that contemplate knowledge as made of various fractal levels of communication structures, dynamic open systems with permeable interdisciplinary borders, which include ideological, political, economic, and axiological structures. Very importantly, because all human actions are increasingly performed by means of digital instruments, the changes point in the direction of a huge shift in the ontology of symbolization involving the foundation of design development and evaluation of visualization systems from a semiotic perspective. Thus, the present volume includes various papers on organizational semiotics in building information modeling and functional requirements, classification models, and operational approaches to conceptual understanding. So what are they trying to develop here? Machine intelligence, and they're trying to pair machine intelligence with human intelligence. Immersed as we are in the digital revolution, the pedagogic significance of images cannot be underestimated. The corpus of learning resources relies more and more on graphics, charts, and icons than it ever did before. Once the amount of content in the World Wide Web has reached saturation levels, design practices are oriented towards the transformation of content and its replication in various semiotic multimodal formats. The image is possibly the most prominent one. Different gains and losses take place when the actions involved in using an artifact are captured onto an image. As it may happen in the context of teaching technological subjects such as physics or mathematics. Debates on the effects of these changes upon representation and their impact on learning practices have ranged from views on the catastrophe of image dominance for literary and cognition to expressions of enthusiasm and attempts to elucidate the effects of the distinctive semiotic affordances, potentials, and constraints for making meaning. Amid diverse media formats, as pointed out above, the foregrounding of design as a crucial semiotic category also implies a conceptual shift from the idea of learning competences in relation to specific educational practices conceived in terms of understanding and following particular conventions, to a focus on agency at both ends of the semiotic chain. Thus, various papers in the volume develop the topic of science, education, conceptual change, and teaching methods and approaches. Going to pause for a second before we wrap it up. Why do you think they're trying to shift people to online learning? On the computer, more and more time on the computer. The image, why do you think memes are so powerful? The image, it's about the image. I can't stress the image enough. It's one of the biggest and most key points to influencing archetypal thought patterns in people. Leveraging concepts to steer the human mind in certain directions... Let's continue. This is going to wrap it up here. Last paragraph. As a conclusion, this introduction has provided a framework for the papers included in the collection. A common thread is the delimitation of interdisciplinary borders at the material level of physical reality as well as in their semiocognitive and cultural implications. Semiotics continues to provide a framework for emerging knowledge traditions, extending its limits to the non-human realm of biosemiotics and cybernetics without completely disregarding the hauntings of the past as body schema expands to its non-human and post-human dimensions we need to keep chasing the ghost in the machine and that's the end of this paper folks post-human the ghost in the machine You see, it's all about steering the human being into this transhumanist philosophy. Having this acceptance of artificial intelligence as a real and very much necessary part of our future. Merging with it, using cybernetics principles to do this, to attach some of these older ideas, which are far more important, these old philosophical ideas, which are far more important to the human spirit and the human mind than anything being presented today technologically. So they're trying to merge this together, the old natural sciences with our new science, the old ways, the philosophy of old, with the technology of the new, It is an alchemical tech revolution. Where do you think I came up with that name? They're trying to blend the old alchemical systems in with the new technological systems in an inverse fashion. They're trying to invert the natural order, and they're trying to leverage these alchemical principles to affect and steer the human mind right into this new technocratic nightmare landscape that they plan to build this transhumanist future, this post-human world where we will be merged with the AI and we will be but a mere representation of what the old man once was, a cheap knockoff of the real deal. That's what it's all about, folks. Anyway, that's all the time we have for tonight. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now.
1: Come with me say sí.